0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Nights in the Breach, your bi-weekly podcast chronicling the people and events from around the 740 from a faith-based perspective. This is part two of our conversation with Deacon Jeff Hurdley. We cover topics ranging from Deacon's time in the Episcopal Church, his coming home which eventually leads to his ordination as a deacon in the Catholic Church, and his involvement in prison and jail ministry. So without any further ado, here's part two of our conversation with Deacon Jeff Hurdley. Welcome back, Deacon. Thanks for being with us again. Pleasure to be here. Uh, how are you today, Alan?
1: Oh, very nice. It's a great day.
0: Awesome. Uh, so, this is the beginning of part two of our episode with uh, Deacon Jeff Hurdley. Um, you know, last, the first episode, if you haven't already, please uh, go take a listen to that. Um, we talked about um, Deacon growing up in Austin Town, uh, going to church with his father. Eventually, going to Ohio State and becoming uh, an attorney. Um, And then, you know, uh, his conversion story, which is pretty powerful. So I would uh, definitely recommend going back and and listening to that before you dive into part two. So, um, where we left off, part one, Deacon, you just had this amazing conversion experience. Um, You asked the Lord, you know, to give you kind of that sight for two weeks. What happened after that? What happened with you and Chris? What happened with your family? She's probably thinking, right. what happened to my husband? You know?
2: Yeah. So the first thing that happened is I went from never really thinking about God to thinking about him all the time. Uh, as I wake up every morning, the first thought that comes into my head is God. Uh, and Lord, I love you. Thank you so much for another day an opportunity, another opportunity to walk with you. Uh, And that was totally new. And I thought that that might fade, it never has. From that moment, uh, Good Friday, 1996 to this day, that has been constant. The other, yes?
1: yes. I was going to say, so while this was going on, what's Chris saying to you? Like, where's my husband? Who is this
2: guy? She's watching. She's watching, and she's seeing a real change. And um, that eventually led to her coming into the church. We talked last time that she was not baptized uh, and grew up in sort of an unchurched environment. And we're regularly going to church, and I'm becoming very involved in the church that we're at. Now, I did not go back to the Catholic church because Chris was uncomfortable with that. She grew up in a an unchurched background, and the only exposure she had was through her grandfather who was a Baptist preacher, and that's very anti-Catholic. Right. Uh, so she was uncomfortable with Catholicism. So uh, we looked at other churches and I took the Took the next best option in my mind, which was the Episcopal Church, which is Anglican. It's very similar to Catholicism, although it's Protestant. So we're we're attending services at a Protestant church. Um, as a footnote, I have no idea what I'm doing. In terms of my <laughs> Catholic faith at this point, I have no idea about the ramifications. I'm still a pretty arrogant individual, okay? The Lord is has gotten a hold of me and he's beginning a process of transformation, but I have a long road to walk and a lot of growth to, uh, to experience. And I'm still pretty decisive and, and somewhat arrogant. It's like, I don't need to go talk to a priest about any of this. This is just what we're doing. Okay. So unfortunately (laughs) I regret that, but this is where I'm at in my life. So, Uh, We're going to the Episcopal Church and I'm getting very involved to the point where I'm teaching Bible studies. I am a lay reader, so I'm leading prayers on the altar. And then I become senior warden, which is sort of the highest position of a lay person in a congregation in the Episcopal Church. You're sort of the right hand man to the pastor,
0: uh, to the rector. Uh, Is that and, like foreshadowing for what's going to happen later? It's somewhat. Like, it the Lord. going through my mind. Yeah. I,
1: wow, <laughs> the Lord. The, you know, I'm
2: just being led into this, but these experiences are helping me to to experience and then discern what I will eventually be called to do as a deacon in the Catholic Church. But I'm sort of the the right hand man of the pastor, and uh, we're going through very difficult times in the church. Uh, in the Episcopal Church. And Chris, she's seeing all of this. And she's noticing that this change is real and it's permanent. And she's being drawn into that. So she comes into the church. She's baptized. We baptize all of our children. And we are all starting the process now of growing in our faith. And my wife is a beautiful person um, and has a true, loving, compassionate heart, and she just blooms. Take this fertile soil that exists in a loving, compassionate heart, uh, a genuinely good person, and then let the Spirit, you know, produce and grow forth fruit from that, and she is blooming and becomes very active in the church. Uh, But in the Episcopal Church, we get to the point where there are theological disputes that are occurring, and because I was very active in the church, the bishop of the diocese of the Episcopal Church, he asked me to sit on a commission that was looking at the big issue that was dividing congregations in the southern uh, diocese of Ohio for the Episcopal Church. And I'm On that commission, in a meeting with other representatives from the diocese, people are on two sides of this theological issue. And in this, (laughs) I'm starting to interact with folks, and I'm saying, how are we going to resolve this? And I was shocked that one of the priests, the first priest I asked that, said to me, we don't have to resolve this. We're going to be on opposite sides, and we really don't care to be in unity with the rest of you we're going to just do what we want to do and I, that took me aback. Sure. and then I said well what's the process for resolving conflicts in the church generally and the, the response to that was you just do what you think is right based upon your reading of scripture and my response to that was well We disagree. We disagree on this issue here about how we're interpreting Scripture. So who resolves that disagreement? And they said, nobody does. We just do what we want. And that, to realize that there is no model for resolving differences, okay, no set model, procedure for resolving differences. When I heard that, the thing that went in my mind was, all right, you feel that your interpretation of Scripture is correct, how do you know it is? Does that information come from God or come from man? And how do you know it comes from God? How do you know that he has blessed you with the ability to discern his will as opposed to somebody else? How do you know that you're right? And it occurred to me, and I I actually... I asked that question of this individual and they basically said I just do what I feel is right Um, and I don't need I don't need to have somebody like a Pope tell me what to do and that when when I heard that it's like oh of course the Pope the Pope the Pope Catholicism there is a way to resolve disputes maybe God did want us to be Catholic maybe he gave us the ability to be unified and to resolve disputes and that became very important to me not just to resolve issues and again as an attorney this in my professional career that's what I'm all about now Um, I went from litigating fighting in litigation to in-house practice which was negotiating trying to resolve disputes avoid litigation so I'm all about conflict resolution These things are very important to me. And now it's in a theological basis. And I realized that Catholicism has a way to resolve disputes. And the thing that struck me, besides the fact that there's a model that struck me as so important, is that what I saw happening to people in dispute was they began to hate each other. They hated each other. They reviled each other. They called each other names. And we're supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're red-faced, pounding on the table calling each other's names. And it occurred to me like this is incredibly dangerous for our spiritual well-being. This can send us to hell. This can't be the way we live. And that began the process of coming back to the church for me. Um, we had Father Gideon. Uh, Father Peter Gideon was pastor here at St. Mark. I had, I had been to St. Mark before we left and went to the Episcopal Church, and I loved St. Mark. My first impression of it was, ooh, the Spirit's here. The Spirit's here. My and, wife
0: and I had the same exact feeling. Yeah. As, soon as, as soon as we walked through that door, we knew... Like, we, we had to be here for some reason.
2: Yeah. Spirit's here. And the reason why is people were singing. They were singing. You know, I <laughs> grew up going to church. The church down at the end of the church or my father's church. And, you know, people are attending church every week, but not a lot of singing. It's going <laughs> through the motions, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here.
2: Right. And that's a trap I think we all
1: tend to fall into at one time or another. It's, it's easy to go. Th- yeah. Just oh, easy to go through, go the, through the motions.
0: and yeah. right. And yeah. people
2: were friendly and they came up. And that, that was very unusual. I had not been to a Catholic church other than the Newman Center at the university where at the end of the service somebody came up and said, Hey, how are you? I'm such and such, which happened. Uh, it happened in the Episcopal Church. When I went, my very first experience in the Episcopal Church, somebody came right up and said, Hi, who are you? You know? And, but that happened at St. Mark. Too. Yep. So I went to St. Mark and uh, talked to Father Gideon and um, he just listened to it and he said, you know, I've never heard a story quite like this and I'm going to have to think about your situation uh, before I give you some advice as to what you should do. And he did that and in his wisdom, by the grace of God, he said, you need to go through RCIA. Um, now, as you know, being baptized a Catholic, you know, one month after I'm born. Why do I'm I Catholic. need to do that? I'm, I'm already Catholic, Catholic yeah. right? I, you know, right. I need to go to confession, certainly. Right. And there's a lot I need to go to confession for. But the the his wisdom in saying you need to go to RCIA, there was there was great wisdom in that, uh, for a lot of reasons. One, it was very humbling to because I was being dismissed. We came to communion time and it's like Jeff get up walk out of the church you're not worthy to be to me now not to other folks who are
0: father Pete did not say that to you he did not say that to (laughs) me this is
2: what's going on in my head it's like Jeff you need to get out of the church you're not worthy to to come to the meal that was humbling that was powerfully humbling um but the other thing that I experienced was I am I am really being exposed to the fundamentals of the faith again um And engaged in a lot of wonderful, good conversation with the people who were leading RCIA. And it was really reawakening me to Catholicism. Um, And I I hate to say it, but as a child, I don't know that I had the best catechesis when I was growing up. Um, I don't want to blame the church because, you know, I, I had good priests and they would preach the gospel. My ears were not open. Okay, I I firmly believe that. My ears were not open. But I don't remember a real rigorous catechesis where the the fundamentals of the faith were sort of laid, that those foundations were built up in our heads and in our hearts. So this experience of RCIA really gave me that foundation again and and just sort of awakened a lot of desire to become even more active. Uh, I started... Uh, doing kind of what I did in the Episcopal Church. I started leading a Bible study. Uh, I became active in other volunteer ministries in the church. And then I had people come up to me and say something I hadn't heard for it before, which was, have you ever thought about being a deacon? And, I, you know, I hadn't I hadn't um, Thought about that in the Catholic context. Um, and what I did was I went on a sort of a retreat uh, one year. I went to a monastery and I started reflecting and praying. Monasteries are great places w- to go. Which
0: one was was this deacon?
2: Uh, you know I can't I've gone to two in my life one is a Benedictine monastery which was in the Catholic, or, I'm sorry in the Anglican church up in Michigan up by Kalamazoo St. Gregory's Abbey great place um, Benedictine monks up there and uh, just a wonderful place um, and then the other that I've gone to is the Catholic monastery down in
1: uh, Kentucky, Gethsemane.
2: Gethsemane, I know right. it well. Alan, yes. do you have any ties <laughs> to that? I have a cousin that's a, a monk. Beautiful. There. Yeah. You know, uh, Thomas Merton uh, was a uh, was a brother there at Gethsemane. It's got. It, it, it's just a wonderful place. And uh, I'm at a monastery and I'm reflecting on these issues and I began to feel a tug uh, to explore it further that maybe the Lord is indeed calling me to this. An
1: interesting little side note. Um, We had a family gathering. My cousin uh, was his 50th, I think, uh, birthday. So we went down last year and I found out that there are actually more Protestants going in retreats
2: than there are Catholics, which shocked me to my core. Yeah. There's <laughs> a hunger. There, I, I have experience of this. I think the Lord is leading people to be open to the richness of the faith in Catholicism. There is a hunger for lit, liturgy, there is a hunger for the Eucharist, and there is a hunger for these uh, traditions, these faith communities, monasteries, uh, covenant or uh, convents that have that have um, come into existence over the centuries. That type of place that is holy, that is quiet, that is beautiful, where you can shut out a very noisy, distracting world, and just be present to the Lord. There's a hunger for that. I I re,
1: when I went down, I believe it was late November, still the weather was decent. And uh, I had joked with a bunch of the family members, oh, they start their morning at 3 a.m. Yeah. And I thought, well, I think I'll go to the early uh, morning uh, rites. And at about 10 till the bell starts to go
2: off. Yeah. And it's like pulling you. Oh yeah, it, oh, it's incredible. It is. You hear the bells, the chimes, and it's and it's so, it just very clear, crisp ring that goes over the hillsides. This is just, out
1: into the in God's country. Yeah, and yes, it's just I I don't. You have to hear it.
2: It just draws you. It's like a holy call. It's like, come, come.
0: Yep. And we can add a a link to their website in the show notes. Um, And we also have a link on our website.
1: So let's get back
0: to what you were saying. Uh, So
1: your decision-making process, the diaconate, is this really something that I need to... Go to?
0: uh, Can you explain real quick, Deacon, maybe for those who are curious about it? uh, Essentially, what is a deacon?
2: So, uh, the order of deacons, it's a holy order uh, in addition to uh, the priesthood uh, and the episcopacy to bishops. Uh, There are three orders of holy orders in uh, Catholic tradition. There's the bishop, the priest, and the deacons. Uh, The foundation is laid in the scriptures for the diaconate, and deacons um, are not priests. They are ordained to a ministry of service. So if you look in the scriptures, you'll see reference to deacons, like um, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, who are serving at table, who are helping the poor, uh, distributing the gifts, that have been raised for those who are in need uh, taking the word to other communities other cities you know uh, within the church within the empire they're 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 bringing the good news they are bringing letters greetings uh, requests for assistance etc the deacons are doing these things so it's a ministry of service uh, in the church during the Middle Ages uh, there was uh, a huge problem that occurred with members of the diaconate who were abusing the authority of the order. So you have, to, you have to understand a little bit about try to put yourself back into life of the early church. There is no safety net. There is no social safety net, okay? If you're living in the Roman Empire, you either make it or you don't, okay? You're on your own. Uh, You may have some family, maybe some friends who are supporting you if you're sick or in need, but you're on your own. Well, the wonder of life in the church and in the body of Christ is that we're moved, we're called to help others who are in need. So people are raising money and they're helping others who are in need, and this was powerfully attractive to people in the in the early life of the church because here you have a group of people who are caring for each other you see how these Christians love each other they're caring for each other well the deacons were administering the gifts and as you can imagine they're getting a lot of prominence they're getting sort of power in the church uh, because they are actually helping they're doing they're the hands and feet who are out there helping those who are in need and people really appreciate that. Okay. So they have influence. And during the middle ages uh, with all the wealth that was being generated, they had deacons who abused that role. So there's an effort in the church to suppress the order and it is suppressed until about, uh, you know, mid 20th century with Vatican II, where they bring back um, the order uh, in the sense that during after the suppression in the Middle Ages, the diaconate didn't go away It's part of the living tradition of the church, but it became transitional. So there was a hierarchy of orders in the church. You began as a deacon, then you became a priest, and then a bishop, if, uh, you know, if, you're, if God calls you. To these uh, to these orders, so there are still deacons, but they're transitional; they're on their way to becoming priests. All right, and it stays that way until the mid 20th century, when during Vatican II, uh, the Church, led by the Spirit, um, uh, gives uh, dioceses throughout the world the the ability to um, or provinces throughout the world to have permanent deacons. Uh, who are not on a track to become priests, they're just deacons, they're ordained to the diaconate, an order of service, and they can be married. Okay. So as a deacon, if you are already married and you become a deacon, you remain married, but if your wife predeceases you, you take vows to, um, to remain celibate after your wife passes. Okay, If you are not married and you become a deacon, you must agree to remain celibate. Okay. So celibacy is still an aspect of the diaconate, but it's a little bit different for permanent deacons than it is for priests.
1: Um, I think a lot of people are a bit hazy still. Uh, what can a deacon
2: do and what can't a deacon yeah. do uh elaborate yeah sure so the deaconate is a highly functional order deacons can do a lot to assist the priest and the bishop whatever whatever task is out there they can be available to assist to serve in terms of sacramental life there are some restrictions on what a deacon can do uh Deacons can witness marriage vows. They can baptize. Um, we can preside at uh, funeral vigils, um, but we cannot confect the Eucharist. So we cannot uh, we cannot celebrate a mass. Okay, only a priest can do that. That's unique to that sacerdotal order. Um, Deacons, uh, or only a priest can anoint the sick. Only a priest can hear confessions. These are things that, in the scriptures, when the Lord Jesus um, gave us the gift of these sacraments, it was given to the presbyterate. Okay, not to not to the diaconate. So, um, in sacramental life, uh, anointing of the sick, um, confecting the Eucharist. And hearing confessions are reserved to the priesthood. But otherwise, deacons can assist with that, other elements of sacramental life.
1: And you're doing all this without any pay or compensation. That is a very powerful volunteer. uh, You're laying yourself out there at your own expense to help others.
2: Yeah, so it is, again, an order... Of service uh, you're called to sort of exhibit Christ the servant it's a service order uh, generally deacons are, are not paid if you however are um, like a full-time individual working in a position in a diocese where somebody otherwise would be paid a deacon may he may receive funding but you know just working as a um, sort of a part-time deacon uh, not in those types of positions, yeah, you're not going to be receiving funds, right?
0: In terms of, like, the the process of becoming a deacon, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, it's a four-year formation program that includes taking uh, classes. Go ahead.
2: So for me, okay, so I had this this sense of perhaps I'm being called to the diaconate when I was at, at the monastery, and um, after I came back from that... <clears throat> Excuse me. I uh, got in contact with the deacon administrator for the Diocese of Columbus and I asked about, so how do I explore this further? And I was directed to enter into an inquiry period, which for me was two years. So uh, that inquiry period involved me taking classes at the Josephineum that um, were sort of core Core subject matter classes such as church history, um, th- uh, the fundamental theology, uh, and um, and in these core courses, what they're doing is evaluating the men who or who are experiencing a potential call, discerning that call. They're evaluating us to see if we have aptitude, we have gifts for what a deacon is called to do, and. Um, then, as part of that process, we're required to work on a um, sort of a term paper uh, where we write something out, and then we have to give a presentation on our,
0: on our work, our research. You excelled at that, I'm assuming.
2: Well, I, uh, yeah, I, you- love, I love this. I love research. I love uh, uh, presentations. So, But what they're doing with that is, is looking to see whether or not you can preach. Because one of the things that deacons can do uh, is at the at the request of the pastor, they can preach uh, during Sunday Masses too, Lord's Day Masses, they can preach. Uh, so they're looking to see, can you do that? And that inquiry period for me was two years. Uh, then there is um, a decision that the bishop makes to invite men into the form, formal formation program which for me was four years um, and then you are you're regularly taking courses at the Josephinum you're doing a lot of writing you're practicing homiletics you're practicing giving homilies uh, and uh, for me it, it was a wonderful experience I love the Josephinum first of all it's fun it, it was fun attending courses at the Josephinum it's a great place and we're meeting with the other uh the other men who are discerning a call and you become very close to them they're your class uh and i i love my brothers uh that we went through formation with um value their friendship and um, you know you you become close uh and it's just a really good experience uh
0: and one of the final things is you and Chris had to go through a psychological evaluation. Yes, is yes. that true? <laughs>
2: yes. Yes.
0: So, and you pass, which is good. It seems <laughs> like you both passed. <laughs> Thank Congratulations God. Congratulations on oh, that. We
2: pass. I'm not crazy. <laughs> so, uh, although, so you go through a psychological interview, both if you're married, uh, your wife has to go through one too. And, um, they ask about things like, have you had any experiences of the Lord? And I, Obviously, did, and there were others that I've had that we haven't talked about, and I shared all of these with them, and uh, they evaluate. It's like, okay, you know, they just take a look at that, they listen to that, and um, I I, I just will share uh, as I as I was sharing these experiences with the with the person who was interviewing me. I went through the first one, which I shared. He's like, wow, okay. And then I went through the second one, he's like, okay. And I said, he goes, anything else? And I said, well, yes. <laughs> and he's like, uh. And he's like looking at it I could read, read his body language, although he's trying to be very neutral. It's like, he's it's like, this is not going well. <laughs> he's gonna, you know, well, what's going on here? So I told him the last experience that I had and, um, this was, a, this was an experience where I, I felt pretty clearly that God had blessed me with these experiences that were helping me grow in my relationship with him, but that they were gonna come to an end. And I, I in my prayer life with him, I just was very certain of this, they're gonna come to an end, but things would be okay. Uh, and I asked the father, can I have one more experience of you, like I have experienced? And he did, he gave that to me. And see, I'm starting to tear up just thinking about it. Uh, when I was telling this individual who's interviewing me this experience, I said, it was like the Lord gave me a hug and the Father gave me a hug. And that was beautiful, it was beautiful. And that was the last, that last time I had an experience like that. Um, but God the Father is so good, and we are his children, and he loves us so deeply. I cannot wait to be in his presence. I cannot wait to be in his presence fully.
0: Um, we hope you stick around a little bit longer, though, okay. Deacon. We enjoy having you around.
1: I, I do have one other question. And yeah. with the priest shortage, and I can't imagine in recent years without the deacon the Deacons uh, being there to take that workload uh, from an already overworked priesthood. Do you think the church is going to kind of reevaluate the diaconate yet again and and give you more things to do, oh, or maybe bring know. more deacons, or you know, a
2: push to bring? You know, um, y- you would think that deacons would think a lot about that um, and, and maybe maybe some of my brothers do. I, I don't actually I, I've come to the point I am very content with what the Lord puts before me. I feel blessed by what He puts before me and I pray that I can be, um, that I can be committed and and, and zealous uh, and, and effective. In doing the good work that he puts before me, uh, but what I've be, what I've learned as a you know I've, this is the trend, this is the progression from the arrogant attorney who thinks only about himself and is very arrogant to now <laughs> um, a, a servant who is being taught humility year after year after year after year and still is in the process of being educated in this, uh, where I realize that. The Lord Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. And the branch doesn't demand <laughs> uh, a particular, uh, you know, ministry or, or to bear a particular fruit. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in charge. And he is a good and loving God. And He, his wisdom is infinite. And I just trust him and i am content with what is before me and i also have begun to realize that the functions of a deacon are generally what people think about when they think about deacons what can you do and we've talked about that which is that's a very reasonable what can you do versus what a priest does how do we you know how do you know the difference but i think that the thing that i am becoming more and more aware of is that With regard to relationship with the presbyterate, a deacon is called to be a dependable brother in Christ, somebody that you can go to and depend on. It's like, I need help. Can you do this? Yes, Father, I will do that for you, and I will do it for you. Um, When the priest is having a bad day, you know, because they do... (laughs) They have bad days.
0: Priests are uh, people too. They're people. For too. the record, yeah. And they're you see,
1: too. you see when uh, a priest may be heading for a lot of stress. That you can, right. Father, yeah. what what can I do for you? Well,
2: yeah, it's like just to be somebody who is available for them to bounce ideas off of, who's available to listen, who's available to give advice if they want advice, but who's available really just to be a friend. Uh, that. I think is the original diaconate, the first century diaconate, and I think that that is where the Lord is leading the diaconate in the future, is that we need to be brothers in Christ, true helpers to the presbyterate, um, true helpers to the faithful, um, to have our feet both on the altar as well as in the pews, and to be open and available um to to be in relationship with people, to be engaged with people. Uh, that I think is where we're, the Lord is taking us. Yeah. Now whether or not new work comes our way, it will in, in, the, in the wisdom of God and we just we just go forward with what is put before us.
1: But I have to say, even what you were just saying, I mean, you're taking a lot of pressure, stress, off of an over, Hopefully. already overworked <laughs> Hopefully. priesthood. Hopefully. Hopefully. Sure. I, I mean, I don't think anyone out there isn't seeing that, even at Mass on Sundays.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, Deacon, you had this conversion experience back in 1996. Um, you said, you know, in part one that you got down, prostrate on the floor, and asked Jesus to help you find the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus came through in a, a big, big way. And that leads us to November 7th of 2020, when you're actually ordained a deacon. Yeah. And again, you find yourself prostrate on the floor.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was an incredible day. Uh, incredible day. Uh, there, it is powerful. Uh, and we do this, um, you know, th- at times throughout the year in our liturgies where the, the priest and the deacon are prostrate before the Lord. Uh, in the tabernacle and um, it is it is powerfully reaffirming that we are called to surrender uh, and to to be available to the Lord
0: I, I think um, today's gospel uh, in Matthew 16 where Jesus said to his disciples whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself take up his cross And follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.
2: Right. And when we're laying on the floor, too, you're in a cross position because your arms are out. So you are surrendering to the Lord, but you are also um, sort of in a position that reminds you that we walked the way of the cross, um, which is um, a life of service which involves sacrifice that is voluntary, as well as sometimes suffering that comes from the outside that um, that we are called to rejoice in um, and to live in in a way that is transformative. Not just for us as individuals because suffering that is born in faith makes us stronger, but it also... Is encouraging to those around us. But also, it has the potential to be redemptive in that we join our suffering to the Lord Jesus. uh, Because we're part of his body, right? We're participating in the life of Christ. Jesus is still saving the world. We are as hands and feet. And he is still being persecuted. He is still suffering through his children, who are members of his body and when we realize that that we are part of the body and then we join as a child we join our suffering to the lord's and then out of faith we lift our prayers to the father as he did to pray for others including our enemies those are powerful prayers those prayers are redemptive um and i think it's what paul mentioned or what he was thinking about when he mentioned being co-laborers in the redemption of the world uh, and that is through these powerful prayers so when you're laying there uh, all these all these, it's powerfully symbolic of, of all of these
0: things and so uh, and again uh, if you look at the links in the show notes you'll be able to go check out a Catholic Times article that actually has a picture of you um doing that. So uh, go and check that out. Um, did you realize, you know, the Lord called you to be a deacon, you said yes. Did you realize how many crosses you would bear? Maybe this one in particular of the real presence, real future?
2: No, uh, no. Uh, it's always it's always new. As I said, the deacon is a very functional order. Right. There's lots of things you might be called to do. Uh, The Real Presence process, uh, you know, as we heard about it and that the focus was on evangelization and drawing nearer to the Lord in the Eucharist, very excited about that. Uh, And one of the things that we tried to do, uh, I remember uh, during the pandemic, you know, the Real Presence process is starting to get going. And as a staff, we came together and we're with Father Pete and we're talking about how do we respond to this. And in prayer, one of the things that we thought would be appropriate as a first step would be to build an adoration chapel where we could draw near to the Lord in his glorified body in the Eucharist uh, and lift up prayers for the extension and upbuilding of the church. So we started the process of putting together the adoration chapel and uh, that was something that I was tasked to uh, to play an active role in. And uh, we were trying to decide, so what what are we going to do with this chapel? And I remember Gethsemane. I remember walking in to the church in Gethsemane and being overwhelmed by two things. One was the absolute simplicity of the place. All It was originally... A, Almost like a cathedral, very ornate, adorned with art, worshiping the Lord. Took it all out, whitewashed the walls, and then has has a very natural uh, floor, you know, either rock or tile, very natural floor. It's a very simple, simple, whitewashed space, and yet it vaults to the sky. It's the grandeur of the worship space is there too. So it's both grand as well as simple. And I thought, you know, if we're gonna put in an adoration chapel here, we're gonna to have to... Um,
0: you also had budget constraints. We have budget d- constraints. Due to the process of... We have proper. budget constraints.
2: Yeah. So what can we do here? And we thought, well, as a transition, uh, what, we'll do, <laughs> what we'll do is take everything out of the space, we'll whitewash the walls, and then we'll just bring in a couple of chairs. And we've had people come up to us and say, this was the most in- intense adoration experience I've had because there are no distractions. There's just the Lord. It's wonderful. You know, please don't change it. <laughs> well, that was good. And it is wonderful. But we, we wanted to do something more. And we're trying to decide, well, what can we do more? And we looked at the pastoral its sort of humble nature of Saint, the St. Saint Mark campus and thought, well, of all of the episodes we have in the life of Jesus, perhaps his incarnation being born in a manger, which is very, very pastoral and very humble, uh, very simple, might be what we could try to build upon in this Adoration Chapel. So we came up with a design that sort of looks like a manger. It's very uh, natural materials. It's a lot of wood in there, uh, but it's simple. Uh, and uh, I think you know we, we put some stained glass in there, but we tried to have episodes of the incarnation. Uh, and all of the all of the art that is in there uh, is pointing to the incarnation. And there. Are, there is a reason for this for me personally it's it's deeply moving because from this experience we talked about last time with that that encounter with the Father through Jesus one of the things that has uh, that has remained with me is how intimate God is with us how he comes to us in great simplicity. And he, the Lord of glory, the king of the entire universe, whom angels and saints fall before and worship in the kingdom of heaven, comes to us in human form, in a manger, and is so utterly open to us. And we draw near to him and he embraces us. And that's what we were hoping for to experience in this chapel, and I think people do. The Lord comes to us in in great openness and affection and in a very humble, simple place, and we can be intimate with him. And that is a very special thing about this chapel.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. Um, I, I certainly don't get there as much as I would like to, uh, but my experiences there have been uh absolutely wonderful because it is it's quiet it's simple it's beautiful the lord is there um and i would encourage um anybody who's who's hearing this um if you haven't been to adoration in a long time or a while or you've never been to adoration uh please check out the times and come to saint mark and adore the lord
2: yeah and if you're the only person there Give thanks to God because you have one-on-one time. <laughs> that's right. With Personal. the Lord
0: Jesus and the Father
2: and the Holy Spirit. And yeah, so. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Have,
1: has there been any surprises since you've become a deacon? Like, I did not see that coming or I kind of knew where I was going, but then, wow. this.
2: Uh, yeah. Um, I, I will say that as a deacon, and when thinking about becoming a deacon and the things that deacons do, I never thought that I would be as drawn as I am to pastoral care, uh, in meeting with people, uh, in bringing them the Eucharist. Uh, it's not something, I'm kind of, I'm an introvert, and I thought, oh wow, I don't, I don't know, it's outside of my comfort zone to go and you know, meet with folks and bring them the Eucharist and then talk with them. Uh, but in doing that, I was surprised about how special that is and how much I like it, how much I love it. Um, it's, it is a wonderful gift to bring Jesus to his, his children and to spend time with incredible saints of God. Incredible saints of God. The holiness, I am, you know, people tend to think, oh, priests and deacons, you know, they should be holy, right? They're holy and I, I, that's not the way I view these things. I am constantly somewhat shamed and encouraged by the holiness of the people of God in this place. Incredibly faithful, holy people and it's such a great gift to be able to spend time with them, hear about their families and their lives and just experience the great faith, the depth of love, uh, and the presence of the Spirit in their lives, it's engaging. Jesus tells us in the scriptures that when two or more are gathered in his name, he's there, that is so true. So I'm surprised by that. I shouldn't be, but I am, that I'm encountering Jesus here, and that's wonderful.
1: Now, you've also taken on a prison ministry uh Where you're working with men that have done some probably terrible things in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And they're trying to turn things around. Tell us more
2: about that. Yeah, so my brothers in our deacon class, we're all gathered together. And the deacon administrator comes in one day and says, How many people here have have, uh, been engaged in jail ministry before? He actually said, "How many people have been to jail Jail. before?" (laughs) And I was the only one who raised (laughs) my. So he said, "Okay, great." He takes out my name, and then the bishop—I didn't know this—but the bishop um, was gonna had a need for somebody to be a chaplain, a Catholic contract chaplain, at um, a a prison that's uh, nearby uh, to this uh, to this area, and um, he appointed me as the contract chaplain. The Catholic contract chaplain for this facility. And I i had been in a county jail before, you know, for ministry, but I'd never been to a prison, never have been to this particular prison. And when I walked into the prison uh, and walked into the yard, there are prisoners everywhere. They're all around you. And I thought, well, this is so different. This is so different. But you have to walk about Oh, I don't know. Maybe maybe a quarter of a mile to the chapel. You have to walk through the yard to the chapel, and and you get to a chapel. It's a uh, it is a uh, church. It's a multi faith facility now, but it was I think originally blessed as a Catholic church, and uh, people come. You know, there are, there are prisoners who come there who are members of the body of Christ in that place. And it is a prison, so it is hard. It is dark, spiritually. Uh, It is an unpleasant place. You would not, nobody should want, even think that they want to go to prison. Uh, It's not a pleasant place. Uh, And it's unending. It's unending. Day after day after day of darkness, spiritual darkness all around you. The church there is... Is really challenged, you know. For for the men who come to the chapel services, they are under weight—the weight of persecution. You know, where people will make fun of them, call them names for doing that. Uh, they're under; they feel that. And yet, you come into the chapel, and the Lord is there. There's a tabernacle there. The Lord is in the tabernacle. God is in. This prison, the source of all light, love, and life in the universe, is in that prison. Uh, and it's a great gift for them to be able to come into that chapel and be with the Lord. Uh, and it's a great gift for me to be somebody who is called to come in and uh, you know, participate in those religious services that take place there.
0: I think... Um maybe talk a little bit how the the jail ministry differs from the prison ministry right yeah so I, I've been uh, to, to jail ministry with you several times um, and you said something that that really struck me just in terms of you know th- these folks in jail they don't really know where they're gonna end up or for how long or whatever the case may be right so it's a different mindset there as opposed to the prison. Right. So talk about that.
2: Yeah, so the county jail um, is a facility where uh, prisoners go. They're sort of making their way through the judicial system. So uh, they are spending time there. There are felon felons, you know felony offenses there as well as misdemeanor offenses. And uh, so you have a mixed group. You've got some you know some very very serious crimes and, less serious crimes uh, in the county jail but they are making their way through the judicial system and they may spend all of their time there um, or they're on their way to a prison and, the, and they're going to prisons based upon the security concerns raised by who they are in their offense um, so when you go into the county jail it's difficult to do things like long term bible studies for example because you don't know if they're going to come back or they're going to be there the next time you come back so you can't really start a comprehensive series you pretty much you every in every visit is you go in with the mindset of it being this is the only contact i'm going to have with that individual so what am i going to do and the bible studies that are present there what we've done um, as catholics is take the lectionary readings and you know we talk about the readings of the day um, or the lord's day and uh, it's also an opportunity to explain a little bit about the catholic faith you know every time we meet with them. And we say so. We're going to use the lectionary. Does anybody know what that is? Right. You know, anybody here Catholic? And and then you can explain a little bit about the faith to people too.
0: I think uh, you know, um, doing away with some of the myths of the Catholic Church that these folks who've never encountered it, the things that they believe about the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. You know, I think that's that, that might almost be half of it. Is just kind of correcting those misconceptions in a lot of cases.
2: Right. Um. I'll, you know, I think we've all probably heard about some of these things like Catholics worship Mary. No, we don't. You know, or uh, Catholics just engage in empty rituals. No, we don't. You know, but they're, they, they don't understand the Eucharist. Um, they really don't. Uh, a lot of people have lost the notion of Jesus being really, truly, substantially present in the Eucharist, uh, they have no idea about that. A lot of uh, people who aren't Catholics think that Catholics are worshiping just a piece of bread. Uh, And it's like, no, no. And if you would give me the opportunity to share with you the scriptural passages in the Old Testament as well as new that support the Eucharist, I think you'd be amazed about what God has done through salvation history, through the Bible to lay the foundation for the greatest gift He's given us, which is the gift of Himself in the Eucharist, to be intimately connected in communion with Him through this gift. Um, I, I think they'd be surprised.
0: Yeah. So. Absolutely. Um, Deacon, I know we've we've covered a lot of ground in uh, these these two parts. Um, Was there anything else that that you wanted to bring up or talk about?
2: Yeah, I I would like to address the issue of the merger. And uh, we started off talking about that last time. And I do believe that people uh, were shaken by that a little bit um, and perhaps saddened by it. But what I would encourage people to do is to trust in the goodness of God. We all... Are drawn to the Lord. We're familiar with the places where we have worshiped Him, and it's like coming home again. It's very much coming home, coming to our spiritual home. And the thought of having to leave this home, this place that we are very comfortable in, or have it changed in some way, is deeply uh, unsettling to people, and I completely understand that. But the Lord, throughout our lives, challenges us by moving us outside of our comfort zones. And we are continually called to walk by faith. Because when we're outside of our comfort zone, then we reach out to him to say, Lord, help me, help me, um, help me get through this, help me to understand this. What do you want me to do? You know, He calls us to walk by faith and he is good. And he purposes good for us. So remain hopeful, remain faithful, remain open to the work of God because there are deeper, bigger things going on in our lives than just simply the physical place that we come to to worship. There are lives that are being called to God there are lives that are being transformed by God and there are people that he wants to reach that we are going to be called to go out and be instruments of accomplishing that that are so much greater and, and of infinite importance than some of these other things that we tend to think about so remain hopeful remain faithful trust in the goodness of God and be the church, be available to serve. He calls us to follow him, to follow him.
0: Wow, really, really well said, Deacon. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your time. Um, We really appreciate it. I know I can speak for the St. Mark community, and and I'm sure St. Mary as well, that we appreciate everything you do, the crosses that you you carry for us every single day, Uh, and we're really blessed to have you uh, as a part of our, our parish family. So. Absolutely. So thank you for that. Well,
2: thank you both, too. Yep.
0: Deacon, will you please close in prayer? Yes. In the name of the Father,
2: Son, Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Make you to know the great love he has for you. Call you as his own now and forever. And may he bless you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Thank you, Deacon.